Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cried to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? It is, as Pastor JP uh, announced today, it is so exciting for us as a community to know that God is moving us forward in so many different ways. And one of the big things that is coming up that we've been letting our members know, we've been letting uh, many of our church people know throughout the last month or two, it is that we are going to be moving our location. It's been quite a while, actually, since we've had our own sanctuary. It's been since 2018, we haven't had our own sanctuary. We've been sharing sanctuaries. You know, we went uh, from our previous Hongdae sanctuary, we went to uh, SFS for uh, about five, six months. And then from there, we went to Heart House in Yangjie. Uh, and that's been almost two years now. And it's been crazy how God has provided for us. And this move is no exception. This is definitely God's provision. I wanted to kind of give a little bit of the backstory because this has a lot to do with our message for today. Pastor JP briefly mentioned that it was an 11th hour, uh, an 11th hour testimony. And it really was that dramatic. Uh, unfortunately, you know, our God seems to love drama. And so, you know, I kid you not, we had a service, I mean, we had a meeting with the elders at 7 p.m. on, I believe it was a Wednesday evening, and we needed to make a decision whether we were going to be moving and where it was that we were going to be moving, all the budget and finances and logistics that go along with that. And at 4.30 that day, like 4.30 that day, two and a half hours before that meeting, um, this was a last ditch effort. Um, you know, we, you know, heard from Abudongsan about this, this place in Shincheon and, uh, you know, Pastor JP and Jacob were off scouting another place and I went on my own to this place in Shincheon. And I, I would love to say I went there full of faith, but I didn't. <laughs> I was a little bit demoralized by then. I was like, ah, oh, well, I guess I just got to fight all the way till the end until that last hour, until we have to make that decision. I guess, you know, we'll, we'll check out this place. And, um, this was the place. Uh, I didn't know immediately as soon as I walked in, but I knew that this was, you know, a really good candidate considering all the other places that we had seen. But then what felt like God's favor on this, it was, you know, it was a Christian landlady who not only was tolerating a church coming into her building, but was welcoming us and celebrating us. And she I don't know. She didn't know us, but she had a really great impression of who we were. And she welcomed us in, uh, you know, with open arms. And, you know, she was even offering, you know, to help uh, a bit with the renovations and such. And so it really was God's grace, God's mercy. Um, Some of the backstory in the whole search for a place over the last two months 
The odds were stacked against us. And this is why we were asking for so much prayer. We are in the middle of a pandemic, number one. And so big gatherings, if you're a landlady, would you want a big gathering in your building? No, right? Second thing, we are a church. Churches right now don't have the greatest reputation in the city right now. They are, you know, seen as a source of, you know, many cluster infections and such. And then third, we are foreigners. Uh, Foreigners also don't have a really great reputation right now in the city. And so we had the odds stacked against us um, for us to be able to move. At the same time, we really did feel that this was God's timing for us to move. It made no sense in many ways. Life could have, been, uh, could have been a lot easier if we had waited maybe for another year or two, but we felt very strongly God is calling us to move, and this is the time, as, uh, as, you know, as crazy as it sounds, this is God's perfect timing for us to move. Throughout this whole process, I wish I could say it had been a very easy process, like, oh, look at this open door, and wow, look at this other open door, and it frankly wasn't that way. Uh, Spiritually, it did feel like it was a blessing that we had to wrestle through and wrestle for, and this is what I'm going to be preaching about today. Often, the moment we hit resistance, we often misinterpret this as this must not be God's will. This is a no from the Lord. When the moment we hit resistance, the, the moment we hit a wall, we interpret that as this must not be the right way. And we immediately turn or we immediately give up. But there are many times and many uh, oftentimes in our lives, we're going to experience this. A closed door or an initially closed door, some resistance, some pushback is actually an invitation to press in. It's an invitation for us to wrestle with God for our blessing. And until he gives it, it's going to feel hard. It's going to feel like labor. It's going to feel like, why am I making life hard for myself? Can't we just move a different year? Can't we just wait for the economy to settle? Can't we just, there's so many different things that we could do to get out of this tension of, man, it's hard right now. It kind of feels like a closed door right now. But there are moments in our lives that we are going to face when we hit that resistance. And it actually isn't God's way of saying no. It's God's way of saying press in. Have faith. Wrestle with me for this blessing. Here's my point. Just because we felt God was calling us to move doesn't mean We took that as an invitation to sit back and relax. Like, well, God said we're going to move. So I guess, you know, realtors are going to drop out of the sky and onto our laps. You know, uh, real estate, you know, like contracts are just going to, you know, come from every corner. And we're going to find ourselves in a place where we don't need to really do anything. We don't really need to pray. We don't really need to contend for it. But these things are just going to be handed to us on a silver platter. That wasn't the case. We felt God was calling us to move. And so we got praying. And so we got pressing in. It was an invitation to knock on that door in faith, in persistence, in perseverance, and to not give up. And there was a turning point, honestly, for me as a pastor. There was a turning point for me as we were wrestling through this process. I found myself, as the, the, the deadline grew closer and closer, and again, it, it happened at the 11th hour, As the deadline grew closer and closer, there was greater anxiety in my heart. 
There was like, man, did I, did I hear wrong? Did I make a mistake? Did I make promises that I can't keep? Is this really, you know, God saying no? And I would feel more and more anxiety. And so my prayers became more and more anxiety driven. It was like, oh my gosh, we're going to get kicked out of this place in a few weeks. Where are we going to go? We're going to be homeless as a church. And there'd be so much stress and anxiety, this feeling of like, man, I, I gotta, I've got to come through for the church. Man, this is something that you know I've vision cast for, and I've talked about, and we prayed into, and what's going to happen if God doesn't come through? And there was so much anxiety in my heart. And there was one particular day when I was praying, and I kind of stopped myself in the middle of prayer and realized that I was praying as a beggar. I was praying from a place of like, oh my gosh, we're in so much trouble. Gosh, you're going to, God, you have to provide. Look, we'll take anything. Like, God, just give us a sign. Just give us a, 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 you know, just crack the door open. God, would you, and I was praying like a beggar. Like I was trying to twist God's arm into giving a blessing that he was reluctantly going to give. Like in his heart and in his mind, he really didn't want to bless our church. Like he really didn't want us to have a place to worship together. He really didn't want us to move. He really didn't want us to grow. He didn't really want us to, you know, uh, you know, put down our roots. And it was this feeling of like realizing that I was praying to God as if he was against me. He was already biased against me. And if I didn't push hard enough, and if I didn't really convince him that we are deserving of this, the blessing wasn't going to come. And this was a turning point for me. Not in that after making this realization, I stopped praying. It was a turning point for me in that I continued to pray even more fervently, but from a place of faith from a place of knowing in my heart, this is God we're talking about. This is our father. New Philly is his church. We're not praying for this out of greed. We're not praying this out of our own agenda. We're not praying for this so that, you know, we and our name can be exalted. We just want a place to worship. We want a place for us to be able to gather as a community, for us to be able to call this place home, for us to be able to picture ourselves growing, our families growing, our children's ministry growing, our membership growing. This is the heart from which we are praying. This is not something greedy that we are coming to God with, with our own agenda. We want what is best for his body and won't God in his goodness and his mercy give it. We don't need to manipulate him into blessing us. We don't need to twist his arm into blessing us. We can pray, yes, with perseverance. We can pray with resilience. We can pray with passion. But we need to be praying from a place of faith. So today's today's message is titled, A Picture of of faith. And as we look into this passage from Luke 18, my desire is that it will help correct our vision and our understanding of who God is, who we are, and what the invitation to pray is all about. Because if there's prayerlessness in our lives, 
if there is a lack of prayer and faith in our lives, it's not merely a behavioral problem to tackle. It's not simply a discipline thing, although often that is the case. Prayerlessness is a symptom, it's a red flag of an underlying belief about who God is and who I am. Often when we think about, man, I need to pray. Man, I need to be good about attending house church. Man, I need to be better about reading my Bible. Often we tackle this as this is a behavioral issue that I need to fix in my life. And we often forget to look beyond that behavioral issue, beyond that habit into the root. Why is it that I don't pray? Why is it that I don't enjoy reading the word? Why is it that I drag my feet to house church every week, which I don't think is the case from what I hear house church attendance is going great. Why is it, why is it that I, you know, postpone as, as far as I can this thing about with meeting with God and spending time with him? Why is it that I drag my feet? There's a reason behind it. We don't act just out of impulse. There are underlying beliefs that we need to re-examine. So instead of just saying, hey, am I praying enough? I think the first question we need to ask is, am I viewing God rightly? That's the first question. Am I viewing God rightly? Second question, am I viewing myself rightly? And then finally, Am I acting accordingly? Am I behaving accordingly? Am I making decisions accordingly? We need to get to the root of the issue. Because at first sight, when we look at this passage in Luke 18, we think Jesus is saying, hey, there's this judge and there's this widow who nagged him and finally got her way. So now go do that. In first sight, we think that's what Jesus is saying. But the point that Jesus is actually making is quite the opposite. And we'll go through it bit by bit. The first truth that we need to walk away with from this parable is that God is not an unrighteous judge. God is not an unrighteous judge. Jesus wasn't giving the example of this judge as, well, this is God. This is a metaphor for God. He's saying, this is not God. God is not this stingy, corrupt, unrighteous man that had no fear of God and had no respect for man. God's not like that. Hence, we can pray. Hence, we can persevere in the place of prayer. Now, let's... Take a moment just to think about what it would look like to be a man who does not fear God and has no respect for man. As believers, as all of us here, we have some measure of the fear of the Lord. We know that our actions have consequences, that there is a God who cannot be fooled, who knows every moment, who knows every fleeting thought, and that one day we will be held accountable for our lives before this God. In the back of our minds, we know that even if I could fool everybody here, I could fool my family, I could fool my church, I could fool my friends, I could fool people in my workplace, even if I could fool somebody in my, in my life, there is a God who knows perfectly, who judges perfectly, who sees perfectly. And no facade can fool this God. No act 
can convince him. No effort to maintain a certain image before him can fool him. He sees right through us. And this, to some extent, creates a sense of morality and uprightness in the way that we live. We have a sense of what's right and what's wrong. We have a sense of what is good and what is bad. We know that we're called to live a life that is blameless before a righteous God. This is what it means to live with a fear of the Lord. Now, secondly, as citizens residing in a country and as members of society, we live with a certain respect for man. We live in accordance to laws. We strive to be a contribution to society. We want to be a good influence to people around us. We have a regard for our fellow man. There are things that we do and we don't do in accordance to that. Imagine we lived a life without regard to man. If we live like that, it means that we would not fear breaking the law because we wouldn't fear getting caught. We would have no regard for law enforcement. We would have no regard for the judicial system. If we live like we are the only ones who matter and I have no respect for anyone else, I would live like my personal good and my personal pleasure is the ultimate ends that justifies every means, no matter how much it hurts or damages someone else. That is what it means to live without regard to man. And this is the way that this unrighteous judge is described. This judge has no fear of God, has no regard for man. He lives for his own comfort. He rules in favor of his own agenda. He likely takes bribes. He plays favorites. He judges with bias. He bends or breaks the law. He thinks himself untouchable and exempt from the law of the land. He abuses his power and his authority. He can get away with anything. He is not accountable to anyone. And instead of using his position as a public servant to uphold justice and to fight for the rights of the oppressed, he uses his position and his power to line his pockets, to be the one doing the oppressing, to be the one who is a proponent for injustice. And this judge is so evil and so corrupt that the only reason he gives his poor widow the time of day is because he's fed up. He's annoyed. He's worn out. He's been dragging his feet. He's been refusing to give this widow a hearing completely unaffected by the fact that her livelihood, her family's survival, her only lifeline and hope for making it through is on the line. He doesn't care about any of that. He didn't eventually relent For her good, he eventually relented for his good. Now, this description of a judge has nothing to do with our God. It couldn't be more different. The God that we see in the Bible is not one who acts out of frustration. He acts out of compassion. He isn't a corrupt, stingy, out-for-himself person who abuses his power and authority. He is a holy, perfect, loving, mighty God who uses his power for the good of his creation. God isn't someone who protects his interests to the detriment of others. He's a God who lays down his very own life for the redemption of lost 
the redemption of the broken, the prodigal, the proud, the abandoned. That is the kind of God that he is. And so Jesus' exhortation isn't, hey, God is like this unrighteous judge, so wear him down and strong harm him into getting what you want. He's actually saying, if even an unrighteous and corrupt man will bend his will at the perseverance of a widow, how much more your heavenly father, how much more a compassionate, loving, and faithful God, how much more a God that scripture says he leans his ear to hear our cries. He chases us down with his mercy and his grace all the days of our lives. He takes care of the birds of the air and the lilies of the fields. He knows a number of hairs on your head. He knows you by name. He anticipates your needs. God is not an unrighteous judge. This truth should thunder in our hearts. It should set you free to pray. He's not waiting for you to grovel. He's not begrudgingly giving you the scraps of his leftover time. He's not seeing you as a burden and as a nuisance. He is a loving father. He is a faithful friend. He is a good shepherd. He is a caring protector. Therefore, pray. Therefore, ask. Therefore, seek. God is is not an unrighteous man. That is the first truth that we need to be able to walk away with from Luke 18. He is nothing like we could picture him. He is beyond our imagination. The second truth that we need to walk away with is you are not a helpless widow. You are not a helpless widow. In Jesus' time, widows were on the lowest rung of society. They were dependent on charity of others for survival as the man of the house was no longer there to be the breadwinner. She was limited in what she was able to do to sustain her family and herself. If you remember Ruth, the story of Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, they are both Um, They were both widows in the Old Testament. There was a reason why these two had to go back to Naomi's hometown and they had to glean the fields after the harvesters had gone through it already. Gleaning was picking up the leftovers. That's what gleaning means. Picking up the leftovers that the harvesters had left behind. There was a reason why that was the only option on the table. There's a reason why God instituted civil laws for harvesters to leave some crops behind in the periphery and to not completely wipe out the entire field. There's a law that said you cannot take everything out of your fields. You need to leave some behind for people who have no means of making it through. It was because this was the only means of survival for people like these widows. There's a reason why in First Kings, a widow tells a prophet Elijah that she has no bread to give him, but she's going to eat whatever's the last of her provisions with her kids and then resign to die. Thankfully, you know, the prophet miraculously provided for her family, but there was a reason why she was in that situation. There's a reason why in Mark 12, a widow that gives a two copper coins, Jesus says that's everything that she had. These two copper coins was everything that she had, and she gave it to God. And there's also a reason why this widow in Luke 18 is persistent. Her life depends on it. 
She no longer has a luxury of holding up her dignity and her composure. She no longer needs to look like she's not a charity case. She no longer needs to maintain a sense of pride and personhood. She's desperate. This is a life or death situation. There's no room for dignity. There's no room for playing hard to get. There's no room to turn away help. She must get justice or she will die. She must get justice or her kids will die. Now, have you ever seen a desperate mother when her children are on the line? There is nothing a mother will not do. There is nothing a mother will exclude herself from. She will go as low as she needs to, to ensure the survival of her children. There is no thinking about, well, what will I look like? And how will people think of me? And what is my reputation? They are desperate. And in the case of this widow, they are alone. No one is going to fight for them. If they don't fight for themselves and their kids, they are done for. She's not thinking, man, am I being a nuisance to this judge? Am I burdening this person with my request? Am I being polite? She's thinking, I'm alone. I need to fend off for myself. No one will help me. No one will fight for me. No one will make a sacrifice for me. At most, I can hope for pity and charity and mercy. But the point that Jesus is making through this parable is, you are not a helpless widow. You are a full-fledged son and daughter of the Most High. You have a father. You have a defender. You have a provider. You are not alone. You are not abandoned. You are not forgotten and left in the fringes of society to depend on someone else's pity. You have been paid for. You have been bought at a price. You have been given access to riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You have an inheritance. You are spoken for. And so if a poor, marginalized, abandoned widow can lay a claim before a judge, how much more can a full-fledged, blood-bought son and daughter of God lay claim before their generous and compassionate father? If a widow has the right to ask, you have more. If a widow has a right to knock and seek, you have more. You are not a helpless widow. You are a son and a daughter of God. So why hesitate to ask? Why hesitate to pray? Why hesitate to approach the throne of grace? You are not a helpless widow. You are a son and a daughter of God. So if Jesus is saying, look, God is not an unrighteous judge. And you are not a helpless widow. What we walk away with as an understanding of the power of prayer is that your prayers can move God. Your prayers can move God. The cries of a helpless widow can move an unrighteous judge. How much more will the cries of the elect, the chosen, the ones brought out of darkness and into the marvelous light, the sons and daughters of God, how much more will they be able to move God as they cry out to him day and night? Because all over the Bible, chapter after chapter, book after book, this is what is testified about. Abraham prayed, 
God moved. Moses prayed, God moved. Isaiah prayed, God moved. Elijah prayed, God moved. Peter prayed, God moved. A leper prayed, God moved. Paul prayed, God moved. And before you find reasons to disqualify yourself, you need to know that God moved in accordance to the prayers of new believers and old believers. He answered both religious professionals and humble fishermen. He answered both men and women. He answered both the rich and the poor. He answered both the respected and the marginalized. There was no disqualifier there. The one qualifier was faith. It can be as small as a mustard seed. And that's all we have most days. Just a mustard seed. That within it has the power and potential and life to move God. Not because of the power of the vessel that prays, but because of the power of the God who answers. God has ordained this gift called prayer to be a conduit for his purposes. He has ordained us to be partners in the process. He has ordained our faith to be stretched at times, tested at times, purified at times, as we pray in accordance to God's heart. You know, sometimes we can theologize our way out of praying. We can theologize and justify our way out of praying. We can say, well, if it's God's will, won't it happen whether I pray or not? Well, if it's meant to happen, it'll happen whether I am part of it or not. Well, if God is sovereign, he doesn't really need my participation we can very quickly theologize our way out of prayer. Now we can spend our entire lives thinking the what if questions. What if this isn't God's will? What if this is not the time? What if this is the wrong thing to ask? What if I'm not asking rightly? What if not the right person to ask? We can spend our entire lives asking the what if questions, theologizing away our need to pray, fooling ourselves into thinking that our fear of disappointment, our fear of putting ourselves out there and being made a fool of, our fear of being let down, our fear of asking for the wrong thing, our fear of making ourselves vulnerable by asking, we can spend our entire lives thinking that those things are justifiable and those are noble prayerlessness things. Or we can begin to ask. We can just begin to, it's as simple as that. We can just begin to ask if we're wrong, he'll correct us. If our timing's off, he will give us patience. If it's not right, he'll say no. If our motives are not right, he'll purify us. But don't let your excuses cut you off at the knees. Don't let that reasoning rob you of this opportunity and privilege to boldly approach the throne of grace. That is your inheritance as a son and as a daughter of God. This is an invitation for us to pray, an invitation for us to cry out. So how do we do this? First, we ask unceasingly. It says that the elect will cry out day and night without stopping. We don't give God a break. Number two, we ask persistently. We will cry out even if he delays. And third, we ask expectantly. 
The elect will cry out knowing that God will answer. We ask unceasingly, we ask persistently, and we ask expectantly. There is an importunity and an impertinence to faith because we need to presume on God's goodness. We presume on his kindness. We presume on his generosity and we boldly approach the throne of grace. We must dethrone this myth of the self-reliant Christian where you don't need to cry out to God for your needs. You graduate somehow from being a clingy, needy, dependent being into a self-reliant, lone-standing Christian. This is a myth. Faith looks like persistence. Faith looks like unceasing, expectant, persistent prayer. Faith looks like knocking on the door that it would be open, asking that you would receive, seeking that you would find. There is going to be a day when faith is no longer needed. Our faith will be our sight on that day. We'll see with our eyes that which we've only had faith for. And we only get to exercise this thing called faith for a few years here on earth. We only get to do this thing called pray to a God we cannot see for a few years here on earth. There will be a day when those gifts will expire, when they will no longer be needed. And I think about the parable of the talents that I preached about a few weeks ago. I believe that there will be a day when God will call me to account on what I did with these gifts that he entrusted to me. And if I get to that day, I pick up off the ground and dust off this thing called prayer. You know, here, God, here's what's yours. Here's what belongs to you. I knew you to be a hard man. I feared being disappointed and I feared being let down. So I did not pray. I feared being made a fool of. So I didn't pray. I figured you'd make this thing happen with or without my help. So I didn't pray. God will then say to me, Susie, you foolish servant. Don't you know what you could have done with this thing called prayer? Don't you know that I was looking for a partner to pray out my heart and my purposes? Don't you know that I was looking for faith in the land? I don't want to come before the Lord in that posture. I want to stand before him. I know and know that everything that he has entrusted to me, everything that he has called me to do, whether it be easy or it be hard, whether it be the path of least resistance or, you know, a walk in the park, whatever it be, I need to know that I've been a good steward of that which he has given me. Because the purpose of this parable in Luke 18 according to verse 1, is that they would always pray and not lose heart. It means that we will lose heart if we do not pray. We will give in to evil if we do not pray. We will lose courage. We will become cowards if we do not pray. This is the same phrase in Greek that is used in 2 Corinthians by Apostle Paul when he says, therefore, we do not lose heart. But though the outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed daily. It's that same phrase. Now, there was a documentary released a few years back. And I remember this just because it's just so impressed on my mind. They were interviewing this adoptive father who visited an orphanage in a foreign country 
And this orphanage lacked the resources and the staff to be able to fully run their operations. So they had children as young as infants, like baby babies, infants, all the way to teenage kids. And this adoptive father, he talked about how in the case of infants, they lacked the staff that will be able to give each and every one of them individual care. Now, if you've been in contact with any of our newborns and infants and and children in our community, you know that they require full attention 24-7, right? The only time they don't is when they're sleeping. They require full attention, and they thrive on this back and forth. They thrive on this, you know, interaction, and they thrive off of your reactions and your reinforcement, and uh, your, you know, like you rile them up, and you want them to answer back to you, and you want them to try out different expressions. They thrive off of this. But this adoptive father, he said that when he walked into this orphanage that lacked that that resource staff wasn't able to give that kind of reinforcement to infants. He said, when he walked in, he heard the most eerie sound he had ever heard in his life. And that was a room full of infants sleeping on their cots and absolute silence. Can you imagine walking into a room full of infants, infants on your right and on your left? And none of them are crying. Some of them are awake. Some of them are squirming around, but none of them are crying. Now, to some new mothers, that might sound like a dream, but that's not the point. The point is that was the eerest sound ever. This was an unnatural silence, an unnatural habit formed by abandonment, where infants that only know to cry for their needs had learned not to cry. So this father got to spend some time with this child that they would later adopt, And they said that after spending some time with a child, it was time to actually temporarily part ways while the paperwork was worked out. And in that moment where they had to say temporary goodbye, this child opened his mouth and cried for the first time. And he said that it was the most beautiful sound in the whole wide world to his ears. A child that had learned that there was someone who would hear his cries someone that would tend to his needs and he no longer needed to be silent, but he learned to cry out to his father. Now, let me ask you this question. When the son of man comes, will he find faith in this church? Will he find those who are crying out to him, praying unceasingly, persistently and expectantly? Or will it be like this father roaming the halls of this orphanage, an eerie silence all around, a house full of children who haven't learned to cry out because they haven't realized they have a father that cares for them. What will it be on that day? Will we be a house, a church, a community that cries out to God, knowing that he is not an unrighteous judge and we are not a helpless widow and our prayers can move God, will we be that kind of church? So this is my challenge to all of us as I close us and as I have our praise team come back up. I know that I cannot make you pray. I know that I cannot force anybody to pray, but what I can do 
is I can break off our misconceptions about who God is, who we are, and what this beautiful thing called prayer is. I want to challenge us in a very practical way for this upcoming week. And this is something that, you know, I hope that you'll take to heart. Nobody's going to be checking up on you. Nobody's going to be making sure that you're doing this. But I would love it if this could be a commitment before the Lord that you make today. Maybe until the end of this year. We only have a few months left in this year. We have a little over three months. First challenge. Commit to pray for one thing that requires faith to contend for until the end of this year. Something that you know God and God alone will have to come through on. Maybe it's the salvation of a loved one. Maybe it's physical healing for someone you care about. Maybe it's the restoration of a broken relationship. Maybe it's regarding marriage. Maybe you have a desire to get married and it's a good desire. Maybe it's a desire to have God open up doors regarding your career. Whatever it be, commit to praying for one thing that will actually require faith, that will require getting your hopes up. It will require crying out to the Lord. It will require God to move on your behalf. Just pray for one thing until the end of this year. Second thing, examine your motives as you do so. Examine your motives. Examine your motivation behind it. Is it for your advancement? Is it out of greed? Is it out of a need to be respected or seen in a particular way by people around you? Examine your motivations. Don't be afraid to bring this before the Lord. He is more truthful than you think, but then he's also more kind than you realize. Examine your motivations before the Lord. If there is an unpure heart regarding this prayer topic that you have, simply ask the Lord to purify your heart, to give you a right heart before him, to be able to ask these things without a sense of entitlement, without a sense of manipulating God, but an open-handed trust in your heavenly father. Examine your motivations. Third challenge, bring someone else into it. Maybe share it at your house church. Maybe get an accountability partner. Maybe talk to somebody in your family or a friend who's abroad about this. But bring someone else into it. The reason why I say this is, number one, we all need prayer from someone else. We all need someone to fight on our behalf as well. But then second, when the breakthrough comes, we want to be able to celebrate this with someone who has seen the labor, the pressing in, the pounding on the door that has happened on in the process. So bring someone else into it. You'll be bringing someone else into the pressing in and the asking, but you'll also be bringing somebody in to the celebration. And then lastly, take one practical step of faith in that direction. Whatever it is, take one practical step of faith in that direction 
Having faith in God doesn't mean, all right, well, I'm going to sit back and I'm going to see God do his thing. It means, all right, if God is going to answer this, then I'm going to be responding in faith. Maybe it means you do something as simple as, hey, I'm going to be taking care of my body better. Hey, I'm going to be learning Korean. These are some things that some of our new membership class people were sharing about their uh, commitments for the end of this year. Maybe it is, hey, I'm going to reopen a channel of communication with this person that I want to be restored with. Maybe it is, hey, I'm going to set a particular time for me to pray into this. Whatever it looks like, take one practical step of faith in that direction. So this is my challenge to our community. Pray for one thing. Commit to praying for it until the end of this year. We only have a little over three months left. Second thing, examine your motives as you do so. Third, bring someone else into it. You don't need to broadcast it to the world if you don't want to. But share it with someone. Share it with someone in your house church, in your family, in your friend group. And lastly, take one practical step of faith in that direction. My desire is that as we move in this direction, as we grab a hold of God's goodness, and as we begin to knock on these doors, by the end of this year, we'll have testimonies to share. We'll have people coming out of the woodwork saying, God answered this prayer in this way. God manifested his goodness in this way. God opened this divine open door for me. God helped me reconcile with this person. God brought healing to this person. We'll have testimonies to share by the end of this year.